Our text this morning, Psalm 51, let me begin by reading the caption that goes with this, the title that goes with it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. The first two words of this psalm are familiar. Some people use them as a catchphrase, have mercy. Sometimes here in the South, we'll say, all mercy, Lord have mercy is what we're saying. And we've used it so flippantly, it's, it's sometimes used, uh, been frequently used in music. It's not only the first two words to this song, but there have been many songs written titled, Have Mercy. There's some recordings that groups have done called Have Mercy, uh, even a band that was named Have Mercy. It slipped over into common culture as that catchphrase. And then, of course, there's always that great devotional classic, Have Mercy, the autobiography of Wolfman Jack, that some of you probably use every day for your morning devotions. But that's, that's how commonly we use it, and we've lost, the, we've lost the value. We've lost the truth of that prayer, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. Week before last, Pastor Tom preached a powerful message on a very pertinent subject concerning the sins of adultery and related sins, fornication. And we saw in that story, the sin of David, that this is the sequel. This psalm is the psalm that David wrote after he stood with Nathan, pointing his finger in his face. Nathan saying, thou art the man, you are the one that has sinned. And David is moved to repentance and confession. As we look at this phrase this morning, have mercy, there are two aspects to this that I want to point your attention to because I think both are biblical and both of them are essential in how we respond to sin. Whether it's David's sin, whether it's all the fullness of the wickedness that David engaged in, or whether it's something as simple as the, the sins of our heart that no one ever sees or no one is aware of except ourselves and perhaps the whole, and we know the Holy Spirit, maybe some others that we allow into those insights, but have mercy. We are all guilty before God. No matter how good we may look on the outside, those in Jesus' day that looked the best, Jesus said, you are whitewashed sepulchers. You are nice on the outside. You have a fresh paint job on the outside, but on the inside you are filled with corruption. You are filled with dead men's bones. As David writes this psalm, David shows us two things that really highlight the beauty of of God's mercy. The first thing is the ugliness of sin. 
or as Paul will refer to it in Romans chapter 6, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. What is the ugliness of David's sin? Well, David understands. David uses three words in this psalm that are used throughout the Old Testament, and he uses all three to describe his sin. David is keenly aware. I believe it is important for us as believers to be reminded of how significant our sin is. Now, we understand that not all sin is created equal. Not all sin has the same consequences. We know that all sin is not equal in what it takes for me to get to that sin. There are some barriers that are hard to reach that point that you have to really go out of your way to commit that sin. And then there are others that are quite easy to commit. But in our standing before God, in our judicial standing before God, we know that our sins are equal in his sight. And it's easy for me to stand back and say, well, my sin's not as serious as this person's sin. Therefore, it's not that big of a deal. It's easy for us to look at David and say, wow, David really messed up. David really had some serious problems. I'm, I'm not quite that far along. My sin is not that bad. I've not committed adultery. I've not committed murder. I've not hidden my sins with lies. I've not done all those things. But to understand how every sin we commit is against the person and the nature and the heart and the love of God, the ugliness of sin David's aware of this, the consequences of his sin. If you read this, he, he is aware of what has taken place. And he describes this. He calls it transgressions. He says, my transgressions. That's the crossing the boundaries that God has laid out. He talks about the iniquity. This is the moral evil that is against God's very nature. And he talks about the sins, which means to miss the mark. It is disobeying God's commands. And he understands that this sin has significant consequences. Think with me about David's consequences. David's sin, of course, did not begin with Bathsheba, but that is the most egregious sin that we know. David's sin began well before 2 Samuel chapter 11. But the sin that begins to snowball in that story, the sin of adultery, the sin of lies, the sin of murder, all of that begins to take place. There are far-reaching consequences. Our world has convinced us that something is not sin if it doesn't hurt someone. Well, it's not hurting anyone. It's just between me and this other person, or it's not, it's not really bothering anybody else. Why, how can it be a sin? But what we forget is that sin has consequences that we can't even begin to fathom. David's sin is not just against Bathsheba, but his sin against Uriah. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he sins against him, not only in taking his wife and in sinning in that way, but he takes his life. He has him murdered. He sends the word to Joab, pull up close to the battle, pull up close to the wall, and then when it's a dangerous point, you drop back and leave him exposed, and Uriah is killed. Not only is Uriah killed, but David is guilty of the multiple deaths that happen at that same time. 
That is why David will later pray, Lord, cleanse me from the blood guiltiness, the blood that is on my hands. David was aware when Nathan said those simple words, Thou art the man, David was aware of what he was talking about. It was not just the act of adultery. It was the sin against Uriah, the sin against Bathsheba herself. A lot of people want to attack Bathsheba, but Bathsheba is not the one at fault here. Bathsheba was washing on the top of her house, and they say, well, that shouldn't be out. That that was a private place. She's in the place that she's supposed to be. The Bible says she was cleansed from her, her impurities. She was obeying the Levitical law. She was obeying the law of God. She's not the one who's out of place. It's David that's out of place. 2 Samuel 11, 1, it came to pass at the time of year when kings go forth to battle, kings go forth to battle, that David tarried at Jerusalem. David's the one that's out of place. David's the one where he's not supposed to be. He's supposed to be on the battlefield. He's supposed to be the one doing what Joab is doing. David tarries at Jerusalem. He sins. He uses the power of his position. He uses the power of his office to put Bathsheba into a place where she is forced into something she apparently does not want to do. That is... That is the sin, the consequences of what David does. David's sin, not only the sin, those that he sinned against, he sins against the nation, the people of Israel that see this taking place. Isn't it amazing that we think our sins are done in secret and how often they are known and we're not even aware of it? That which is done in secret is shown openly. That which is done in the corners is shouted from the rooftops. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known, the Bible says. And David's sin is made known. David not only sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, but he sinned against those that were the closest to him. Do you remember what the servant said when David said, Who is this woman? This unknown, unnamed servant that is one of those great unnamed people of the Bible says to him, is not this Bathsheba the the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, we know who Uriah is. Uriah is one of David's soldiers. Yes, we know that. But David knows that Uriah is more than a soldier. If you read the stories of this section and this life of David, Uriah is one of the mighty men of David. He's one of the the generals, the leaders in David's army. He's not just a common foot soldier. He's one, of the, he's one of the leaders. In fact, it's significant that his house is close enough to the palace that David can see his rooftop from his rooftop. He lives close to the palace. He is one of David's mighty men. If you read through the list, you also read that when he says, is not this the daughter of Eliam? Eliam, Bathsheba's father, is one of David's mighty men. Bathsheba's not just some average person in the kingdom. This servant is saying to David, David, pay attention to what you're about to do. Pay attention to the consequences. Pay attention to who you are sinning against. God does that in our lives. God puts up warning signs. God warns us. It's the Holy Spirit speaking conviction in our heart. It's that friend, that, that person that God uses to speak when we're about to commit sin. Look, Remember how terrible this is that you're about to do. It goes even beyond that. The servant insinuates something that he doesn't even name. When he says she is the daughter of Eliam, 
Eliam is the son, Bathsheba's father, is the son of a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is David's top counselor. He is David's confidant. In fact, later in the Psalms, David will say, we went to the house of God together. We had good fellowship together. We broke bread together. We were close friends. And he says, he's turned his heel up against me. He has turned against me. Why did Ahithophel turn against David? Because David forced and humiliated and embarrassed his granddaughter. David willingly chooses to sin, and he forgets the consequences. He doesn't care about the consequences. Very often, we're so caught up in the temptation. We're so caught up, whether it's sexual sin or whether it's anger or whether it's the words of our mouth or whatever the sin might be, we're so caught up in what we're doing that we're not paying attention to the warning signs that God posts all along the way. Stay out. Trespassing. Do not cross this boundary. That's the consequences that David just pushes through. David suffers the consequences in his family. Nathan says to him, the sword will not depart from your house. David goes to the graveyard and there's the small small grave of the infant child that's born to him in Bathsheba. Who dies because of David's sin. There's the tomb of his son Ammon, who has forced his own half-sister, one of David's other daughters, and then is killed by his half-brother Absalom because of what he has done and because David doesn't do anything. How can David say anything? Ammon is just doing what David has already done. The consequences of his sin, the ripple effects of his sin begin to flow through his family. And the consequences that come. You see, we think, oh, I'm doing this and it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to touch anybody. Listen, our sins are like a stone thrown into a lake. And the ripple effect of that flows and it rolls until it touches so many others. And David is aware of these consequences. His son Absalom kills his brother Ammon. So there's another tomb in the graveyard. Absalom will rebel against his father. Why should he not? David's not this holy, righteous man that he's perceived to be. He's not this godly man. Why should I listen to him? I can rule this kingdom as good. And so Absalom rebels against him. And after fighting against his father, David's general, disobeying David's orders, finds Absalom hanging by his hair in a tree. Joab is David's nephew. And he sees his cousin hanging there in the tree, and he thrusts darts into him and kills him. So there's another tomb, another grave in the graveyard. The sword shall not depart from your house, Nathan said. You think David's aware of the ugliness of sin? We read this psalm, and be reminded that this psalm is a song that is written to be sung in worship. David is taking the most private, personal experience of his spiritual life and he is putting it into this psalm for it to be sung perpetually. We're still reading it today. For it to be sung publicly. It's sung in the temple and there are people who are hearing this and they're thinking, 
I know exactly. I was there when this story took place, or perhaps years later. My grandparents told me about this. I know what David was writing about. I know the backstory of this psalm. Why would David do that? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire him to do that in that moment when he is confessing his sin before God? Because every one of us, regardless of the egregiousness of our sins, regardless of the greatness of our sins, no matter how high or how low the sin may seem, all of us are at a place when we need to pray this prayer, have mercy on me, O God. And we need that mercy. And David suffers all these consequences. We could talk about the consequences on David himself, the emotional pain and torment that he goes through, the turmoil, the perhaps even physical consequences of this sin. There are those who believe that David suffered physical disease that's described in the Psalms because of his sin. All these consequences, the ugliness of sin. But in this Psalm, as David says this, he sees the most ugly thing of all about our sin. And this is what we must get to, or we will excuse our sin, and that is that sin is against God. Notice what he said in verse 4. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The sin is against God. You see, it doesn't matter how much or how little my sin affects me, the consequences. It doesn't matter how little or how much it affects others, the consequences. The greatest consequence of David's sin was what Nathan said to him when he said, Thou art the man. He says, You have given opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. David's sin was was against his nation, David's sin was against his family, David's sin was against his close confidant and friend, David's sin was against himself, but most importantly, David's sin was against God. And that's the ugliness of our sin. And that's what we have to understand, or we will say, well, my sin's not that bad. So-and-so has worse sins than me, this person has sins, my neighbor has worse sins, my husband, my wife has worse sins than me. What we have to come to the place is that we pray, have mercy on me, O God. But I want to point to you the great truth of this passage. That those words, have mercy, highlight not merely the ugliness of sin, but the beauty of God's mercy. You see, it is guilt that may drive me to grace, but it is grace that draws me in. It is guilt that drives me with my need of mercy. I realize how sinful I am. I realize how wicked it is. I see the ugliness of sin. But if I only see the ugliness of sin, I will remain in unforgiveness. I will remain unpardoned. But when I see the beauty of mercy, when I see the beauty of God's grace, it is His grace that draws me to Himself. I'm reminded of the prodigal son as he sat in that hog pen and he saw the awfulness. He saw the ugliness of sin. He saw where he was. He saw the the filth around him. He saw where his sinful choices had brought him. And many of us here today can look at our lives and we can see the consequences. We've turned from that sin, but we see the mess that we've made. And that guilt may drive us to something, but what will it drive us to? 
We need to see the beautiful mercy and grace of God who draws us to himself. The prodigal sits there and he says, this is terrible. The servants in my father's house have it better than this. This is the ugliness of where I am. It's the ugliness of sin. But it was the beauty of God's mercy and the beauty of the Father's mercy that drew him home. And it was the mercy of that Father standing with open arms saying, My son is welcomed home. This is exactly what David points us to. In this simple first verse, I want you to see the beauty of mercy. Notice what he prays for. He first is reminded as we must be of who God is. I point you this morning to the Savior. I point you this morning to a God who is first a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. How could David cry out for mercy? He could cry out for mercy because he knew that he served a God of mercy. How can we come to the Heavenly Father seeking mercy? How can we come to Christ seeking mercy? Because we have a high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and he is in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what we have filled, and he is filled with mercy. That's, the, that's how we can come. Remember who God is. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of unfailing love. He says, according to thy loving kindness, God can have mercy upon us because it is in his nature. It is who he is. The root word for that loving kindness is the word that encapsulates all the bounty and all the good of a covenant God wrapped up into one word. And because of that, because of your loving kindness, show me mercy. I don't come asking for mercy because I deserve it. You see, there are, there's, there's different ways that people respond. When they feel that ugliness of sin and they see the mess that they've made and they see where they are, some will begin to deny their sin. Some will say, well, it really wasn't that bad. Many in our day will say things like, well, that's really not a sin. God really would never judge people for doing that. Or it's not that bad. And they begin, to, they begin to rationalize. They begin to deny that they are guilty. My denials of guilt will not change my standing before God. And they will not change the effect that my sin will have on me. But that's what we do. We think if we deny it, that we can deal with our guilt that way. And there may be somebody here this morning that is feeling the sense of conviction and guilt of their sin in their heart. And the Holy Spirit is convicting and your conscience is convicting and you're feeling that weight. And your first response is to say, well, if so-and-so hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done this. If Bathsheba hadn't been taken a bath, I wouldn't have lusted. If this person hadn't done this, if Joab would have had a backbone and said, no, Uriah wouldn't have been killed. And we begin to deny our guilt by passing the guilt to others. Or we say that it just wasn't a sin to start with. There are others who will try to deaden themselves to their guilt. They have sinned and they know it, but they think if I just don't focus on it, if I don't think about it, some will use substance 
alcohol and drugs to try to deaden the sense of guilt and the conviction. They will try to run from it. They'll try to focus their minds on entertainment, and they'll focus their minds on all these things so that I don't think, if I don't think about the sin, it's not there. It's like a child when they think, if I close my eyes, people can't see me. Never seen a child, I remember seeing a child one time closed his eyes, and I said, why is he closing his eyes? I thought maybe we're getting ready to have prayer or something. I was raised in a preacher's family. You close your eyes, you're getting ready to say a blessing. Where, where's the food? This child closed his eyes, and his mom said, he thinks you can't see him if his eyes are closed. If I ignore my sin, it's no longer there. If I just don't focus on it, I don't think about it. Because if I think about it, I'll start feeling guilty. And there's emotional response to it, and there's physical response, and there's, there's a mental burden that comes with it. Let me tell you that none of these are the right way to deal with our sin. What is the, the biblical way? Some people dwell in their, in their guilt. They just learn to live with it. I will always carry that name with me. I will always carry that name. Think about the names that Paul the Apostle could have carried. The sins that he had committed. And they learn to just dwell with it. And they suffer those physical consequences. They suffer those emotional consequences. They suffer that mental burden and that weight. And they just learn to think, I have to live this way. Let me tell you that as a child of God, I don't have to carry the weight of guilt of sin any longer. I can be freed from that if I'm willing to deal with it in the biblical way. That is to call out to God for mercy because we have a merciful Savior. And when He extends mercy to us, when He extends His grace to us, it is not something that goes contrary to His nature. It is the outflow of the heart of the Savior. He calls out and He says, Have mercy. Show me loving kindness. He is a God of loving kindness. He is a God of great compassion. What does he ask him to do? This is what we pray for God to do. Look in verse, the last part of verse 1. First of all, he says, blot out my transgression. Now, this does not ignore my sin, but he asks for my sin that I have committed. I acknowledge what I have done, and I'm asking God to forgive it and to judicially blot out the indictment against me. How can a God of justice, how can a holy God that we just sang about, how can he do that? He can only do that through the grace and the person of Jesus Christ. He can only do that because of the sacrifice of Christ. But he blots out my transgression. Notice another word that he asks God to do. He says, wash me, I love this word, thoroughly from mine iniquity. The root word for that word, wash, they tell me means to trample. It means to beat, to stomp. It's like when many people around the world today still wash their clothes. They don't go and throw them in a washing machine. They beat them on rocks. They beat the dirt out. You know what David is saying? God, I want you to beat the sin out of me. I want you to work me over until this sin is gone. And then he uses the word to cleanse. This word means to remove all contamination. Verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. He's saying, God, don't stop until you get the sin out. I'm going to have to say that it is a work of grace in our lives for us to be able to sincerely pray this prayer. 
Because our general response is, God, I want forgiveness. But we don't pray for cleansing, not this kind of cleansing. We quote 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do we want God to work us over until he gets the sin out? Most of us pray like Augustine prayed thousand, couple, about a thousand or so years ago. Lord, make me holy, but not yet. We want God to work on us, but do we want him to make us clean and holy? He prays. This is what he asks because this is a work that only God can do. And it is a work of God's mercy. It is a work of God's love not to leave us in our sin or leave our sin in us. God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. It is the grace and mercy of God that makes us aware of our sin. It is the grace and mercy of God that convicts us of that sin, and it is the grace and mercy of God that cleanses us from that sin as he forgives us. This is how we respond. You see, anything less doesn't really deal with the problem. The root problem is still there. We're just putting band-aids on bullet holes. We're dealing with the, we're just raking up the leaves instead of chopping at the roots. We're not getting to the heart of the matter. And David says, I want you to get to the heart of the matter, God, because you are a merciful God. I've been reminded in these past days as I was studying this passage and then I came across some, some reading that pointed me to this. I believe it was affirmed by God. When I'm reading something and studying something and God's speaking to me about it and then I hear it or see it somewhere else, it's like God's doing what he says in Job. God speaks once, yea, twice. I don't want to be like the rest of that verse that said, yet man perceiveth it not. I want to perceive. But you know what he says in Hebrews? This is how we know that we can come to our Savior. We don't, we don't take advantage of God's mercy and grace. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be so. God forbid. We don't just com- continue to commit sin. There are consequences of that sin. But can we be freed from the burden of sin? Yes. Why? Because when we come to our Savior, we come to a Savior that Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that He is able to sympathize with those because He is in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He is able to have sympathy. He is able to have compassion toward. Chapter 5 and verse 2 says that He can deal gently. Who can have compassion? That word for compassion means to deal gently with. He deals gently with those who come. And he uses an interesting phrase to describe that in Hebrews 5. He says, they are ignorant and out of the way. They are ignorant and they are wayward. And that's where we are when we sin. We are acting foolishly. We are acting ignorantly. We are acting out of God's way. And yet God, Christ, our Savior, deals gently with us. So you see, it is the... It is the ugliness of sin, it is the guilt that drives me to mercy. But it is His grace that draws me in. 
It is the pig pen that drives me to the Father's house, but it is the Father's arms that embrace me when I return. And Jesus is standing, waiting. You may not have committed anything nearly as horrible as David has committed, but I tell you that every one of us is at a place where we need to say, have mercy. Have mercy. This morning, if you never trusted Christ as your Savior, you may be thinking, I've done something so terrible. Pastor, if you only knew the things that I have done, you would not even want me sitting here. Let me tell you that every one of us is either a sinner who has trusted Christ as our Savior and has now become a child of God, or we are a sinner. There's no difference. There's no distinction. And I want you to know this morning that if you come to Christ, if you come to this wonderful Savior, if you come to this merciful Savior, that there is more mercy than your sins. There is more grace than your sins, and He will welcome you with open arms. He will welcome you into His family. If we confess our sins, and if we proclaim Him, if we affirm Him, if we acknowledge Him as our Savior, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus said, he that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to him this morning, he will not cast you out. But he will hold you fast because he is one who will deal gently with those who have gone out of God's way. The beauty, have mercy, the ugliness of sin. Understand that ugliness, but understand the beauty of God's mercy and forgiveness. You say, Pastor, I've, I've confessed my sin, but I feel like I'm still living with the mess of it. I suspect most of us could stand this morning and say, there's sins in my past. God's forgiven me for those sins, but I feel like I've made such a mess of my life. Let me tell you what our God can do. God can take the messes we make, and he can make something beautiful out of it. God can take the consequences of our sin. Do you know what he did for David? Was it wrong for David to have Uriah killed so he could take his wife? Yes. Was it wrong for him to take Bathsheba as his wife? Yes, it was. But God in his mercy gave a son to David and Bathsheba. His name was Solomon. God never condoned any one of David's sins. But yet from that family. When it came time for the next king to be anointed of Israel, God said to David, your son Solomon is to be king. And God came to Solomon and said, Solomon, I'm going to give you what you choose. You can choose great wealth. You can choose long life. Or you can choose great wisdom. And David, Solomon says, I'll take great wisdom. And what did God do? God took the ugliness. And through the beauty of his mercy, he took David's mess, and he made something beautiful out of it. Jesus is in the mess-saving business. How many of you were a mess before Jesus saved you? Say amen. amen. Bring your mess to Jesus. Get your mess down to this altar. and Let God do something amazing with it. Will you bow with me for prayer? Father, we stand and sit here this morning as sinners. We can only humbly pray, 
have mercy. I pray this morning that you will speak to our hearts, that we will respond, whether our sin is great or small, whether we're dealing with the sin itself or the consequences of our sin. May we bring our mess. May we bring it to you, and may we receive mercy. Thank you that though our sins are great, your mercy and grace is greater. So, Father, I pray that we'll quit pushing our sins aside, ignoring them, not trying to carry the guilt. But, Lord, we will deal with it as David dealt with it. A man after your own heart, not because he didn't sin, but because of how he responded to his sin. Help us to be a people after your own heart.